want to remind the young people and uh, the not-so-young people who've decided to join in on the word scramble, there's going to be an Easter egg on every one of these slides, and um, mine are not nearly as exciting as the ones that Alyssa put in there, but they were. You know, we've been taught that uh, the normal way of things is cause and effect. Some event happens, and then we see the aftermath. that's not always the case. And even in our everyday life, sometimes we're living with the effects of a future event that has not yet happened that will be the cause of why things are happening now. Let, Let me illustrate. Some of you right now may be planning weddings coming up for this summer. And so you're doing a lot of things right now. You're spending a lot of money right now. You're sending out invitations and getting ready for something that hasn't even happened yet. That's the present effect of a future event or future cause. Some of you are going to be very busy today or maybe tomorrow or maybe on Tuesday because the government wants your money. You are being affected now by a deadline in the future, by an event in the future. And then there's death. Some people live with a terminal diagnosis. All of us have an appointment with death. And I don't mean to be morbid, but it's a reality that doesn't escape any of us. And whether we know that it's going to happen or whether we have no assurance of it, it's going to happen. And sometimes we live our lives knowing that that is an appointment in the future that we must make. And it changes the way we live. And sometimes we live as if it's never going to happen. But what if the resurrection were to shape the way we live the same way wedding taxes death shapes life even now what if the resurrection the resurrection of jesus in the past but the resurrection of all people in the future our resurrection hope in the future what if that shaped the way we live now and what if it even shaped the way that we die in this world. The reality of the resurrection is a future event that ought to impact us now. And you might say we're growing into it. That every day we live, we get closer to it. The resurrection of Jesus changes not only His story, but the fact that Jesus is resurrected changes the story of all of us. And I want you to experience that through the words of a man who made it the quest in his life to understand what the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was all about. His letters fill our Bible. We've come to know him as the Apostle Paul. Or sometimes we hear him called St. Paul, or Paul the Apostle, or Paul who was once Saul. He just simply wanted to be known as Paul. 
a servant of Christ, an apostle, a messenger. He didn't have an official title called Apostle with a capital letter A. It's just what he did. He was a messenger. He was a writer. He was a teacher. He was an evangelist. And so this man Paul, who once persecuted Christ, but now served Christ, in in his letter to the Philippians, he wrote that his quest was to know Jesus Christ. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. And he wanted to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another, He will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see there that He has His own idea of the resurrection, His own experience of it as a future event. And He says, I'm going to come to know Christ and in some way experience that, whatever it takes. Because that was his quest. That's what he was after. It's an interesting thing for Paul in his history to say that he wants to know Christ. Sometimes we put Paul on a pedestal that he doesn't deserve to be on, I'm going to be honest. Because he often said that he was an apostle, he was a messenger, he was a man just like any of us. He was a human being. And he made his mistakes And he had it all wrong, despite all of his education and learning. But for him to say, I want to know Christ, because Paul had an experience that few others have had, although more than we might think. You can read about it in Acts 9. That's Luke telling the story of Paul encountering the risen Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. But Paul himself mentions it. He sort of downplays it in a way. At the same time, he says it's extremely important. He's talking about the appearances of Christ after his crucifixion, after his burial. And then he says that Christ appeared to many. That there were witnesses. 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He says most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as though I were one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. Now, Paul's saying, I, I, I may come in last in all of that, but, but I, did, I did see him. He appeared to me. So it seems kind of strange that Paul, with that experience, would make it his quest to know Christ. Didn't he just see him? He did. But don't you know it took him the rest of his life, and he made it the object of the rest of his life, the pursuit of the rest of his life, to understand what it means that a man who was crucified and buried could live again. What power was behind that? You can't see something like that and then say, gee, wasn't that neat? I'm going to go on about my way. There's groceries to be bought. I've got things to do. I've got bills to pay got to fill out tax forms. You can't just witness something like that and go on your merry way. Paul dwells on it. He thinks about it. This, This experience was just the first step of his quest, of his journey. It changed his convictions. It changed the things that he believed. Paul was a man of conviction. He was so convicted by God's Word that he believed that followers of Jesus the Christ were so wrong 
that they were deserving of death. And now that conviction changes. In 1 Corinthians 15, you hear in Paul's own words what his conviction is. And he's making it clear to the Corinthian church that the resurrection is not icing on the cake. The resurrection is not a nice what if. It's not an option. Not if you're truly going to follow Christ. The Corinthians were maybe just like us. They might be people who sort of had this idea that Well, you know, the resurrection, boy, that sure is good. It's nice to know that there's going to be a happy ending. It's nice to know that after death, you get to go to heaven. But, you know, even if that's not so, hey, Christianity's still a good life. Everybody ought to join in. Wrong. Paul says if that's the case, then it's horribly sad. We are deserving of pity because it means that we have invested ourselves in a lie. Paul says that everything that we do is based on this reality, this thing that he experienced, and so he made it his quest to know it. He says to the Corinthians, if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, before that, he's making an argument. He's saying, so he goes, just for the sake of argument, Corinthians, let's assume that Christ wasn't raised from the dead, if that's the case, and then he spells out all the bad news. He says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's convinced of this because he's witnessed it and he's met others who witnessed it. So he can trust in what he saw. He says, if Christ, in fact, since Christ has been raised from the dead, he's the first. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, he's talking about Adam. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. So just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Paul says we all belong to Adam because Adam's the first man. We're all descended from Adam. He knows that. That's been a part of his worldview for a long time. But now he sees a new option in his worldview. The new option is that if we are reborn in Christ then death is not the end. This is Paul's conviction. And because he is convicted that there's going to be this great harvest, that Christ is just the first. He's the first to, as he'll say to the Colossian church, he calls him the firstborn from the dead. A new kind of life. And you understand, too, this isn't, because I know today this is all so popular, this isn't walking dead stuff. This isn't, re, you know, this isn't return from the dead, vampire, zombie, nonsense, and all that. If you like that stuff, God bless you. Personally, I can't stand it. This is a different kind of existence. Just as life before birth, just as life before conception is a very different kind of existence. And then there's that mystery of life coming about just from the womb. What we call ordinary human life and yet something grows and then we enter into life. The firstborn from the dead is an entirely different kind of existence. You want me to explain it all to you right now? Do you? Well, forget it. I can't. It's got to be your quest. (laughs) You want to get there. I can't explain it. I haven't experienced it. I've seen 
What others have seen in it, I've seen what others have talked about. You read through Scripture, even Paul himself is saying, I haven't experienced this yet, but I want to. And he's making it his quest. And because he's convicted of this, Paul has a message. And that message he mentions in 2 Corinthians. He says, now, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Paul is saying that because he has discovered that the world operates in this different way, I mean, think about it. Since the time, before the time of Paul, and even still today, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus, we operate in a world that assumes that the norm is you are born, you live, you die, and are buried. Period. There used to be talk in generations past of going to heaven, becoming an angel. If you don't do it right, going to hell. There used to be talk of such things. It's still out there. We still preach it. But sometimes that's seen as hopeful, wishing, or maybe, or mystery, or perhaps. But Paul has discovered that there's something even more than just afterlife, which many people in his day and age would have believed in some kind of afterlife. That wasn't, that wasn't new. What's new, Paul discovers, is the idea that there can be a new creation beyond death. And that everything in this broken creation is heading towards that new creation. This is what Paul has discovered. And so like an ambassador from another country, like an ambassador from a different reality, Paul is sharing this message like a prophet who has a word, a royal decree, a message from heaven. He is sharing this word that goes against the norm. That Christ died, and it was for everybody, and it means that this old norm, this old existence of birth, life, death, or, I, have no, I hate to offend, but you hear this a lot, and it gets said, and it gets said by all of us who claim to be followers of Christ. Well, you're born, and then life stinks, and you die, or some variation of that. Paul's saying, that's not the way it is. Because when that new life is hanging out there in the future, when that new reality, the recreation of all things, that Christ died for everyone and we can now all receive new life, then life doesn't just stink. Life has purpose. Life has hope. Life has meaning. Life has direction. We may suffer, but suffering is not the end of life. This is the message that Paul preaches. And what's the point of his message? The point of his message he he expresses in Romans chapter 7. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. 
And now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. You know, sometimes we worry ourselves to death. Oh, I don't know that I lived a good life. I can't tell you how many times that I've gone to the to the deathbed of people that I love and appreciate, or maybe people I'm meeting for the first time, and they tell me, can you pray, can you pray? I just hope I did enough good that God will be merciful to me. And I'm sympathetic to him, but at the same time I want to say, he's already been sympathetic to you. He was sympathetic to you when when Christ died for you. And because he died for you, you can live a new life. Now Paul, and he's making this point as he's speaking to the Romans, he's talking to people who have experienced baptism in Christ. You go back to chapter 6, he's already talking about that. He says, now when that happened, that was the moment where you experienced a death. You bury dead people. And so baptism is a burial in water. It is symbolic. It participates in a spiritual reality of being buried to an old life, buried to the judgment of the law, buried to the hopelessness of the law, buried to our own sinfulness and our own brokenness, but raised with the hope of being united with Jesus Christ. And what God did in Jesus Christ, then God through Jesus Christ can also do in us. The result being that even now, as we wait for this resurrection, our lives can produce a harvest of good deeds. So we're not doing good to earn some reward or prize at the end of the game. We're doing good because that power that raises Jesus from the dead is active in our lives. That goes against the norm, but that's Paul's point. That's his quest. And one of the reasons that that harvest is bearing fruit, you see it in Paul, he spends his time wanting to know Christ. Even though he had that experience, even though he has that conviction, even though he preaches that message, even though he makes that point, he still is on the path of knowing Christ. He says to the Romans, we died And we're buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we too may also live new lives. That's the background of the statement that he said in Romans 7. He's describing baptism as this connecting point, as this unity with Christ. Baptism is not a work that we do to earn salvation. I could ask for a show of hands, you know. How many of you have had heart surgery? We've had some people that have had heart surgery recently, and some of you have had it in your lives. Boy, how much did you contribute to your heart surgery? You, you may have contributed to what got you to that heart surgery. Maybe not. Sometimes it happens that way. But basically, what did you do? You showed up and you trusted people to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And that's the same way with baptism. We show up and we trust our future and our our hope and our new lives to God. Buried to that which condemns us. 
raised with hope that saves us. This is how we know Christ. The first step of knowing Christ is to be born into Christ, to be baptized into His name. It's just the, it's really, it's just the first step on a path. Every runner in a marathon, you know, everybody's got their numbers, 13, uh, whatever it is, you know, 26, whatever it is, all those little numbers that mean marathon. Took me a while to understand what those were. I thought they were like radio channels or something. It means, hey, I ran. Yeah, you know what? The thing is, you got to take the first step. That's what baptism is in the marathon of life of knowing Christ. So what's your quest? What is it that fills you with the passion that you want to know? When I first showed you these, these were the words of Paul. But could these be your words? Could these be our words? You want to say it with me? If you feel like saying it with me, read it with me. And, and the I there, don't quote Paul. Own it for yourself if you can. I want to, to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I said that. I'm not sure I understand it. That's okay. It's a quest. And let me say this. If you've taken that first watery step in baptism, then keep on the quest. Understand this new life. Because sometimes, I I don't think it's always, it's certainly not reinforced in the world around us. And we need to take more options than just this Sunday to reinforce this resurrected life. But let me say this. I know, I know that there is one person here who has made it her decision to be baptized today because it's the first step. So we're going to do that today. And, and I'm not wanting to make practicality the reason why you should be baptized. But if you've been thinking about this and wondering when's the right time and how do I do it, maybe today is a time to be baptized. And I certainly don't want you pressured into it. But again... The only preparation you need to have is you need to be willing to trust in the one who is the firstborn from the dead. When a man submits himself to crucifixion, is buried, and then he comes back and he appears to over 500 and remains active in the world since then, I'd say that's a, that's a king that you can trust. That's a savior you can count on. So why not unite and connect your life with him? The opportunity is here. As we sing this song, anybody who needs encouragement or anybody who wants to respond to Christ's invitation to be born anew in Him, just come down here and let me or one of these shepherds know about it. Let's stand and let's sing.